All right, John chapter 3, we are going to pick up there in verse 22. With uh, what now, this is not the last time that the scriptures talk about John the Baptist, but it is the last time we really hear anything from him uh, other than the question that he sent his disciples to ask of Jesus later on after he was in prison. But let's begin again in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon uh, near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore... There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard heard of that, he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the incredible story of the unfolding of the gospel. How this last prophet, John, has faithfully handed the baton and is even in this passage handing the baton in a manner of speaking to the Lord and saying the one who I told you about the one whose forerunner I am it is he that is worthy he that is above all it's he that is the bridegroom coming for his church the bride it is he over whom I rejoice and with whom I rejoice he must increase but I must decrease Father, we thank you for that life and ministry of clarity, a life and ministry of of understanding who he was and what his role was in the bigger story of the gospel and how he continued even at this last public profession gives honor and glory to the one in whom it alone rests. He gives it to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we do the same as we gather tonight. For it's in your name we ask. Amen. 
I am a son of the South. Long about the time that I was getting to adulthood, a thing called soccer became bigger and bigger in public schools. The funny thing is they called it football. It's not football. Soccer. And there's a huge difference. But on the world scene, it's called the, the, a, a game called football. And one of its best, in fact, his name was George Best. He lived from 1946 to 2005. He was one of the finest soccer players in the world. In fact, the famed Pele said he was the greatest footballer of his time. His natural skill was apparent from his youth, and it was a Manchester United talent scout that found him in Belfast and moved him to England to play for that club. It was throughout his career said that he was a bit of a, well, not a bit of, he was the, the, the epitome of a celebrity sportsman playboy. In fact, he, he often had a very nonchalant attitude about his life and kept saying even toward the end that he had no regrets. One interviewer quoted him as saying this, I spent a lot of money on booze, women, and fast cars, and the rest I just squandered. <laughs> Evidently, even George Best came to see the tragedy of his early demise with liver cancer. At the end of, a li of his life, he actually recanted the no regrets uh, line, and at his request, the News of the World, uh, then prominent newspaper outlet, printed a picture of him, and it's even found online uh, with the oxygen tube, and he's laying in a hospital bed, emaciated, nothing like the, the strong sportsman that he had one time been. And underneath that picture, the last official words that he ever spoke was, don't die like me. Hmm. I wonder what our last profession, our last words will be. John didn't have to worry about that. I think the, the real thing that I'm learning more and more as I hopefully am getting a little more along in my journey of faith and hopefully gaining a little wisdom along the way is the secret to dying well is living well. This evening, I want to share with you the last of the Old Testament prophets was a man who knew how to die well, how to end his life well, and even in a sense before that live in such a way that he could hand off, he could end his own public ministry in a way that honored the Lord, he could end well. First of all, in verses 22 and following, chapter 3, uh, the move here in verse 22 is kind of a... a liaison it's a connecting verse between what has come before in the first 21 verses the interaction with Nehemiah excuse me uh, with Nicodemus and uh, and the Lord and what John took away from that as he interpreted that and we talked about the the absolute centrality of John 3:16 and then last week talked about how 
we really understand verse 16 in light of the fact that we're not trying to condemn the world. In fact, that's already a done thing. Men aren't going to be condemned because we say they're sinners. They're already condemned, whether we say it or not. And saying it only brings light to that situation so that they can respond to the one who is the light of the world. But in this verse, it says, after these things, after this opening episode with, with, Nicodemus, oh, excuse, with Nicodemus, we find that the Lord has gone on with his ministry. And John the Baptist, though he's still actively in ministry, still baptizing, still calling people to repentance and pointing them like he did his own disciples toward the master, there is this real question about what is happening. And so there's some concern among John's disciples. Look with me in verse 23. John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there. It was, a, it was an ideal place for large crowds to come and hear and then immediately respond in a baptism of repentance from dead works, from the old life, but still the completion of the gospel was going to be in Christ. So we see this happening, and, and his disciples again come to him he had, because he's not yet been thrown into prison, as verse 24 says. In 25, they say, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. That is, remember the, the water, the stone jars at the wedding feast of Canaan that we read about earlier in our study, where the first miracle was performed? They were, they were jars that were to hold water for the purification, the ceremonial cleansing rites of the Jewish faith. And so that is what's being referred to. There's a, a theological discussion, and in the midst of it, these disciples of John just add in, hey, we wanted to ask you as well, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, referring to Jesus, to whom you have testified, that is, you're the one that said he is the one who takes the, way, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. It's as if they say the right things but don't understand the impact of what they're saying. How many of you ever had that happen in front of you? How many of you ever done that? <laughs> Here are disciples of John who were faithfully following this great forerunner of Christ. And, and he is now not just running and preparing and calling people to be prepared, but saying the Messiah has arrived. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And his own disciples, instead of immediately in mass following Messiah, they stay with John. We're not, we're not told how that all is working. We're not going to conjecture here tonight. But the reality was that they were not listening as closely or as clearly as they needed to. So these concerned followers bring the issue to John. They're concerned because, you know, it's not about the theological discussion they were having with the Jews. It was about the ministerial success of Jesus. That people were beginning to follow him. And as, as John was, was coming, let's, for, from your, you're looking opposite of me, from, from your perspective, John's ministry is still growing. 
There are still people coming to him. He's getting an even larger area of water for more baptisms to be taking place. People are listening to him because he's being consistent in his talk. He's, he's investing over and over daily, preaching the same message with boldness and clarity. People are responding to that in more and more numbers. But at that, almost at the zenith, almost at the height of his ministry, he meets and intersects with Jesus, the one who he has been preparing for, and that ministry begins to overarch and he's reaching his zenith, and that one who is the Lamb of God is going to, again, far outpace his success. And instead of saying, praise the Lord, what John has been telling us is absolutely true and absolutely trustworthy, and we need to respond to that and follow Jesus as well, they're worried about holding on to the ministry wins that John is having instead of going on with Jesus. They heard him. They acknowledged what he said, but they did not grasp the depth of what John was saying. They were concerned about someone else's ministry, someone else's accolade, someone else's publicity. You know, the paparazzi is following Jesus more than they are you, John. He's getting more headlines. He's getting more airtime there's more sound bots he's get he's got a better social media presence than you do that's the kind you say well they didn't have anything no they didn't have any of that but that's the same thing that we're dealing with today it's not about anything new under the sun it's the same kind of fleshly envy human jealousy that even the righteous have to be aware of even those who would consider themselves faithful and, and want to know more about what's right and what God's doing can miss what He's doing when they allow their own human concerns to overshadow Christ and, the, and God's concerns, God's working around them and, uh, and before them. These concerned followers, again, saw the increasing reception of Christ and also... Verse 24, it says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. John was not overly concerned. But let me just, about Jesus increasing popularity, but let me just say this. There is a reality to a prophet's ministry. I have the distinct pleasure, as Alan was sharing we're going to have a night of praise and worship this coming Sunday night. As part of the pastoral care ministry, the pastor has entrusted us with the initial parts of the ordination process. And we're going to be also acknowledging and ordaining what God, ha- and, and from a human perspective, acknowledging what God has already ordained in three young men's lives this Sunday night. We're going to be setting them aside Three young men that are already serving on our staff for the gospel ministry. It's an exciting time in these young men's lives. I want to tell you it's exciting because there's a world of opportunity. There is an increasing need for men who will stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. But just as it was in John's life, it is in any minister, any Christian's life who is willing to say, no matter the cost, no matter what the the popular opinion is, no whatever whatever is politically correct or incorrect, I'm going to follow the Lord and I'm going to speak truth day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And John did that faithfully. 
And you know what it cost him? His life. I had a pastor. In fact, he was my home pastor. I was 15, 16 years old, already had sensed the call to ministry. In my senior year, in September of my senior year, I knew beyond all knowing that I was called to local church ministry. And so I followed. And uh, my church, my home church, decided that though that, that perhaps because I had not had any uh, uh, pastoral church, local church ministry experience, I wasn't ready for ordination, they wanted to start the process. And so back then we did something called uh, uh, giving a man a license for ministry. It was kind of a first step in the process among Southern Baptists. And, and so in September of my senior year, I was licensed. Now, that means I can legally marry any of my fellow co-ed seniors. <laughs> in a small Tennessee town, that would make me a very popular guy. But no, I didn't perform any weddings that year, uh, shotgun or otherwise. Um, but the reality is that that pastor, though he was pivotal and he and his wife were encouraging in my early days, I can still remember one Sunday morning, he looked out from the pulpit as he was in the middle of his sermon, and he pointed right at me and called me out by name. Now, that's a unique experience. You're like, I know the Lord's speaking, but do you really have to call me out like that? He said, Mike, I know you're preparing for ministry, but if you can do anything else in the world, do that. Now, that sounds on the surface like it might be good, good advice because ministry is not always easy. It's certainly not a, a wealth-building enterprise. It's just you're, you're doing it for, for different reasons, a different calling, a different you know, purpose. But I heard in that voice, in the inflection in his voice, knew enough about what he was trying to communicate that he was struggling. He was frustrated for a lot of reasons, some for his own, because of his own doing and some because of others. But the reality was ministry was at a very hard point for him. I want to tell you that when I speak to these young men, I don't want to tell them, hey, if you can do anything else, do it. Now, they need to be having a sense, even at this moment, they, have, they need to have a sense of calling. Because there will be hard times when they'll have to go back, why am I doing this? Why do I continue in this ministry of the gospel in local churches and when I'm seemingly beating my head against the, the wall or, or I'm saying things and every time I try to speak the truth and try to do it in love and compassion and with an urgency upon my lips... People take it wrong and they get mad because that's the nature of the gospel. It's not about the man preaching. It's about the truth of God's Word. Every one of us, if we sit under one pulpit over and over again, and that pulpit is faithfully preaching the Word of God, guess what? Every one of our sins is going to be exposed. Every one of our shortcomings, every one of our false ideas, any, every one of our prejudices in our, in our background or in our own personal choices, they're going to be exposed by the truth of the light of the gospel, and we're going to have to deal with that. And if we're not ready to receive that and be changed by the gospel, it's going to infuriate us. And the human heart often takes out on the preacher, the messenger, what should be laid before the Lord and said, you know what, Lord, you're right. I'm not upset with that man who spoke the truth. I'm upset with me because I didn't respond to it quicker. But the reality is, John was not upset. Not by the questions, not by the increasing in, in popularity at this early stages of Jesus' public ministry. Why? Because he knew who he was. He knew why he'd come. He knew why he'd been set aside. 
Listen, you don't go out from your mom and dad, the priestly family that he had, and put on, put on hides and eat locusts and wild honey for years just to be, have enough ministry uh, strength to, to preach day in and day out without having a real sense of who you are and what you're called to do. You don't fit in doing those kind of things. But the reality is John knew exactly who he was, why he had been set aside, and what his purpose was. And he saw his purpose being fulfilled in the handing off of ministry to Jesus. He had been the forerunner. He had prepared the way of the Lord, and now the Lord was here. And he was content with that. So while there were concerned followers, there was also a content forerunner. Look with me again in verse 27. Verse 27 tells us, John answered these these men, these disciples of his, and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. He said, listen, guys, I didn't do anything to deserve the following I've had. I'm not doing anything that counts as worthy of having people still continue to listen and respond to my call to repentance. The only person that is worthy of praise in the midst of all of this is not me, but it's God above. He's the one that's given this. When we receive people in response to the call to repent, it's not they're, they're not responding to me. They're responding to the message. And the message is what God has given us. I've received it from Him, and my responsibility is just to give what I've received. I'm a conduit, and I'm a contented forerunner. Why? Because I don't have to compete. Because I know exactly who I am. Who I identify as, as we say today. I identify as the forerunner of God's Messiah. I'm going to do my part. And when God says, I'm finished with you, that'll be fine. But I'm not, I'm not competing with the Christ. I'm not Him. I told you I wasn't Him. And when He is ascending and I may be descending in public uh, opinion, that's okay. Because that's what the plan was all along. Look at me again. Verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses. You, you know this. He's calling them back to the truth that he's already communicated. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Again, I am the forerunner. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He said, listen, guys. I told you, I am not the forerunner. This isn't about me. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. I am not the one whom God has sent to be the Lamb of God. I've told you who He is, and I'm not Him. But let me tell you something. Not only am I content in not being understood or known as being that one who would come, But I know my place so much that I am like a bridegroom's best man. And it's a very vivid picture here. And and I, I want to be careful not to get too graphic. But the last the 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 picture is not as we would think of this this uh, chapel being a place of many, many, many weddings over the last 30 years or so. But more than that, it wouldn't be like, I heard him say I do, and I'm the bridegroom's best man, and I'm rejoicing that. We think of that from 21st century years, 
But that's not what it's talking about. The ancient culture was that the bridegroom's best man would stand outside the, bride, the, the wedding night, the honeymoon suite, and there would be a rejoicing inside the suite that would be heard by the bridegroom's best man. And when that sound was uttered inside, the outside would hear it. The best man would rejoice because the marriage had been consummated. Okay? You say, whoa, I didn't expect that on a Wednesday night. <laughs> been in the Bible for 2,000 years. You guys just haven't paid attention. No, I'm kidding. But the reality is he's saying, look, the church, the, 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 the response is not for me. That's the bridegroom receiving his bride. The, I am not the bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom. And he's coming for his bride to, to, to draw his bride together. To come together as one, he and her, the church together. That's not about me. I'm the one rejoicing, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And I'm saying, hooray, God is doing what he's been promising for centuries. To bring to pass that which is humanly impossible, but spiritually. Oh, spiritually, it is a reality. Look with me, very quickly. Verse 29, uh, excuse me, 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you don't already have that underlined and highlighted and put a little star beside it in your Bible, go ahead and do that tonight. There is so much in that one verse. Not only in the context of John saying, listen, he's the, he's the Messiah. I've been preparing it, but, but he is far more important, and he is destined to far exceed. His role is central. The entirety of the Old Testament points toward him. The New Testament gospels live in his, uh, live out his narrative, and the rest of the New Testament tells of the results of his being here as the perfect Lamb of God that saves the world from our sins. Jesus Christ is the very hinge upon which all of biblical and world history turns. And Jesus is the one who must increase, John says. I must decrease. There, there's a mustness, there's an, a rightness, there's an oughtness to this increasing popularity, this increasing uh, uh, coverage that Jesus is getting, and mine is decreasing. Why? Because I was just preparation. The last of God's prophets in the Old Testament, to tell of the coming because he's now here. Yes, that's important. He must increase. I want to tell you, disciples of mine, Jesus is and must, by the very will and providence of God, increase. But here's the other thing. I must, by that same will, decrease. Not only is that true for John, but it's true for every one of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ to be His followers. Ministry of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Christ in me and you. And not only public ministry, but personal journey of faith. When you and I come to the cross and, and we surrender our lives, believing that He and He alone can save and we turn from that old life of repentance, the kind of repentance that John wanted us to be prepared so that we can then receive Jesus Christ, that is an ongoing truth that John speaks of here in verse 30. 
It's not just that in one man's life, because he was a part of the, the biblical gospel history, that it's important for him to know. But every one of us must come to the point where we realize Christianity is this, if it's nothing else, him increasing and me decreasing. Taking up my cross and dying to myself daily so that he can be seen. Knowing that, that when I am less and less in my own heart and mind, I'm not worried about what the world thinks. I'm just going to be one who says, Lord, you said it. That settles it. I don't have any commentary about it. I don't have any, any, any uh, editorial uh, uh, changes to make. You said it. It's perfectly said. We're going to talk about it in a moment. But the reality is when you and I get to the point where we know, simply put, the Christian life is he must, de- he must increase and I must decrease. It just simplifies everything. I'm not worried about what folks think about what I'm saying because if I'm true to his word, God will take care of it. If I'm to live for a hundred more years or I'm to die tonight, that's all right. I want to be faithful to him. I want to, <laughs> may have already shared this, one of my favorite illustrations. My wife probably got tired of it after 32 years, but my understanding of what Christianity is, is this, we're all onions. And a lot of times when God begins to deal with us, he begins to peel that layer out of our lives. The, he begins to work on that and, and, and remove it from us. And and. We get to the point where we, we finally say, okay, Lord, I, I get it. I'm, I'm dying to myself in that area. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to put that aside. I'm, I'm repenting of it, never to go back to it. Whew. Boy, that was good to know. That's been taken care of. That was a tough deal. Lord, I know you were wanting that, and I'm, I want to do what you want me to do, but, but boy, that was a tough time. I, I really was really stretching moment in my journey with you, and I'm so grateful I'm here now. We got through that. And all of a sudden, you feel the Lord's hand grabbing around you again. And he gets the next layer, and he starts pulling. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't we just do that? Oh, son of mine. Uh, not, no, no, no. And what happens is life in Christ is a continual pulling away of the old flesh, the old stink. And if you've ever seen the center of an onion, you know, you get to that center, and you pulled out all the layers, and that would take some time if you did it manually for sure. But you get to the very center, the very core, and you're very carefully p- pulling away that one, those, those layers one after another. What you realize is at the end, when you pull it away, there's nothing left. The stench of the old life is gone and all that's there because he's removed all the flesh is the life and aroma of Christ. Unhindered by us, by our old life our old sinful habits and, and, and our old sinful perspectives and, and the things that we thought were so important because they were, were part of who we were for so long before Christ or even as we were in Christ, they hadn't been dealt with, but now they've been removed. Guess what, folks? You and I aren't going to see the completion of that process until we see Him face to face, but life in Christ is Him increasing and what's all about us decreasing. That's the reality of a contented forerunner, and it's the reality of a contented follower of Christ today. Third and finally, there's not only a concerned 
follower, or the, we don't only see the concerned followers in the first part of this passage and the confident forerunner in the middle, but at the end, verse 31 and following through verse 36, we see the consuming faith of both John the Baptist and those of us who follow Christ, even Christ himself made this clear. Look with me again, verse 31 continues. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. There is a supremacy of Christ here. That's part of the consuming. When we begin to see that Christ is above all and that he speaks of what he knows in totality from eternity past into eternity future. Look with me in verse 32. What he has seen and heard. Oh my, don't you know? John the Baptist had been the, the youngest of the disciples. Excuse me, not John the Baptist. John the Apostle, who's writing this, had been the youngest of the disciples. He had watched all these things unfold. He had originally been one of the disciples of John the Baptist and then spent a lifetime following Christ. And now writing the gospel, he's saying, listen, what he, the Messiah, has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Now that's hyperbole. That's an exaggeration to make a point. Not that he's lying, not that he's misrepresenting the truth, but there is the reality that most of the world, if they hear of Christ, they reject him. Not all. We understand that's the hyperbole part. None believes him. None receives it. That's that's hyperbole because that's what it seems when you're walking the walk and everybody seems to be up in arms that you're living out the truth that is Jesus Christ. But then he looks with me, look with me again. He says, he who has received his testimony. Now, wait a minute. You said none receives it. Well, again, hyperbole. But there are a small percentage in the totality of humankind that are receiving the gospel and he who has received his testimony, has set his seal. That is, he has attested, he has called it true, he has made it confirmed by his life that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. These two verses, verse 33 and 34, tell us not only that of the supremacy that that Christ who is above all and knows all has spoken exactly what God the Father wanted him to speak and most men reject it outright refuse to believe but those who do receive his testimony because it is such counterculture because it is against everything we are as human beings, prideful, arrogant, self-sufficient as we believe. And yet when we come to realize we are nothing apart from Him, it is a unique experience. It is a miraculous work of God for any person to be saved. Any person. I'm not talking about just the person that's you know, had this horrible life and wound up in the gutter and threw away their life and now they came to know Christ and He's changed everything. That's a miracle, yes. But I can tell you, I can testify that when a six-year-old boy who lives on the third or fourth row back in a Baptist church grows up never knowing anything except home, school, and church, 
When that six-year-old little boy in, night, in December of 1974 came to know Christ, it was just as miraculous as any gutter rat coming to know Christ. It takes just as much blood to save my soul as anyone else on planet Earth, in any age, in any place. And you and I need to understand, John knew that. The, not only the supremacy of Christ, but the significance of Christ is that those of us received it are not, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm so, you know, I'm so righteous now, I'm so good. No, no, no. We're humbled by it. We're amazed by His grace. We're profoundly humbled, not because it's simply a, a miracle, but because we are continually reminded by the vast lostness of the world around us that knowing Christ, knowing the light, having received His testimony is such a miracle of His working, not anything we've earned. We only receive that which has been given to us by heaven. We receive it in faith, yes, but it is a gift, a miraculous gift nonetheless. Finally, Verse 35 and 36, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. That is, not that God is, the father has abdicated any role in salvation, but he has entrusted in the son all that is necessary for our salvation, all that is necessary for his work to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. He who believes, verse 36, in the son has eternal life. Remember that? Last week, we were saying the same thing. He, be, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey. That is, believing in a way that changes our life. It's not head knowledge, it's heart transformation that we're talking about here. The belief of the New Testament is not just I understand a few facts and I believe they're true. I've, I've seen people that would say, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Yes, I believe He was buried three days. Yes, I believe He even rose from the dead. Yes, I can even accept the fact that He ascended to the Father into heaven. I can believe all that in my head and it never make a difference in my heart. They are not saved. Knowing the facts of Christianity does not make us Christian. Trusting in the facts by faith, believing that that truth that we have understood to be true is in fact the only thing that will ever make a difference in our eternity and in our present. We're trusting Him and Him alone, not only for our eternity, but for every breath between now and then. That is faith. Belief that changes our behavior. Belief that changes our obedience. Now look with me, and we're finishing here. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. There is a... <laughs> as we... There ought to be in our lives the same consuming faith that was in John the Baptist about the one who was to follow him. In John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, that said clearly both in the words of Jesus and the affirmation of John the Baptist here, people are lost in need of a Savior. People are going to to hell because they know little or nothing about the truth of the gospel. And they're searching. Some of you may remember 
the comedian W.C. Fields, or remember some of his work if you don't remember him. But it said that just like I was talking earlier about this soccer player, George Best, that at the end of his life, W.C. Fields was on his deathbed. And one of his companions, longtime companions, was perplexed as he saw W.C. Fields turning the pages and reading the Word of God. And he said, W.C., what are you doing reading the Bible? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. Now, whether that was truly W.C. Fields' last testament, last profession, last words or not, history will have to debate that. But there are a lot of people who are looking for loopholes at the end of life. Having lived to sow their oats, and now at the end are praying for a bitter harvest, praying for a, a failed harvest, because they know they're facing a bitter harvest. We need to be men and women who are in the fields telling them there is only one hope, and his name is Jesus. And we don't have to tell it from a perspective of some kind of pushy, you know, mean-spirited, judgmental. We need to say, look, we've all been where you are. And we never knew peace. We never knew hope. We never understood what faith was really about until we placed it in Jesus Christ. And he changed everything. And he can change everything for every one of us here tonight. And he can change everyone who we tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our consuming faith. That nothing is more important than this message. Listen, this last week has been chaotic. I mean, people are losing faith in their system. I'm not going political. I'm just saying, whatever way you think the races went, the political election went in the United States last week, is neither here nor there. People on both sides don't trust the system anymore. And that's no small thing. The city set on a hill is losing its ability to be a light to the world. So if your trust is in a free America, you're going to be sadly disappointed. I'm not talking about the demise of a nation. I I don't know whether that's, I'm not a prophet, but I am saying as a preacher of the word of God, if your hope is on anything less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness, your hope is vain. So whether they tell us to shut up or they give us a a bully pulpit, whatever extreme, our obedience is not based on what the government says. Our obedience is not on what social media tells us is popular, acceptable, or is, or, you know, or, or in a world full of snowflakes, what people's feelings get hurt or not. The most offensive thing that I'm ever going to have to answer for is when I didn't tell a lost person about Jesus Christ when I had a perfect opportunity to do so. I'll regret that. But I won't ever regret trying to share the hope that has changed my life, the faith that has increasingly consumed my life 
for these last, well, these last 47 plus years. The reality is you and I need to be about this. That men who do not receive the testimony of Christ are already under the wrath of God. And we need to show them the hope that is our Savior.